Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today. Noah Rothman, as people are aware, I think, is uh, no longer uh, a staff member at Commentary, having moved over to National Review as a senior writer, where you can sample his wares. He had two pieces yesterday. Uh, on the National Review website. Joining us now as our new permanent co-host, longtime commentary contributor, columnist, and podcast guest, AEI Senior Fellow, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. How are you? It's great so before to be here. We, okay, so before we get going, can we get a little bio on you? Do you want me to do it? Do you want to do it? People should... Well, maybe you... Give it a try, and then I'll fill in the gaps. Okay, so uh, uh, Matt Continetti, who is our uh, Washington commentary columnist and was our media commentary columnist before he was our Washington commentary columnist, uh, began his career at the Weekly Standard uh, after graduating from Columbia University, uh, Mm -hmm. where he wrote extensively about uh conservatism and the corruption of conservatism by the k street gang which was the subject of his first book Mm -hmm. uh he moved on to uh after i don't know was it 10 years 12 years uh to just eight eight years eight years i'm sorry to found the washington free beacon where he was the founding editor and ran it for another what uh, nine years nine years before leaving to join the american enterprise yeah. institute as a senior as a senior fellow uh yes okay as a senior fellow and of course uh produced last year his uh first magnum opus uh the right the hundred year war right. for american conservatism well, that's great I, I would uh you left out my second book uh the most controversial which is called the persecution of sarah palin yeah well i left um, out my third book also by the way which, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, which, but you know what i've decided to own it I've decided how, to own how, how rudy giuliani is the only person <laughs> yeah. who could beat hillary yeah. clinton in 2008 well, so i thought <laughs> i thought i would do you the favor of that's memory like holding this yeah palin that's like book. you know malcolm gladwell uh not wanting to tell people he used to write for the Washington Times, um, yes, or the and the American Spectator. Uh, the only th- as you were saying that, John, though, it occurred to me one of my longest professional associations is with commentary because I believe you uh, solicited my first contribution in the uh, fall of 2012, which means huh. that I've been a, uh, I've been contributing uh, and, and involved with commentary for over a decade now, and uh, I'm proud to do that. Proud to be so associated. Commentaries been very important to me in my life and reflects my beliefs uh, better than any magazine publishing today. And um, so I'm happy to be here. Though, you know, with all this news going on, I feel I, I feel like I need a lifeline. So if I, I take out my cell phone at some point and dial Noah, you know, to yeah. get that to get that to get that uh, perspective, uh, don't be surprised. Well, it is crushing morosity day here at Commentary. <laughs> not that every day is not crushing morosity day. Uh, we we have all kinds of uh, complicated news around the world, uh, a lot of which is very um, sobering, both uh, abroad and in terms of the uh, reaction here at home to some of the things that are going on 
abroad. So I guess we should start with um, the president's surprise trip to Kiev. Um, it's quite a story and uh, conservative efforts to poo-poo or make light of or roll their eyes at what what Biden did here over the weekend uh are are pretty caviling and 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 cheap like this is a a pretty amazing story of uh heading to Poland and then getting on another plane from Poland to elsewhere in Poland to getting on this unmarked train uh and then taking a nine hour train trip in cover of darkness to Kiev where the president emerges in the middle of a war zone to walk with uh, uh Volodymyr Zelensky and uh express uh his and America's and NATO's support for the Ukrainian war effort as as the Russian invasion is just about to mark uh its one year anniversary. Um, but John, I I, yeah. I agree with you entirely, you know, that it's an extraordinary thing. I think the right-wing uh, attacks on it are actually part of the story, though. Um, I think that is actually a, a kind of, uh, on balance, it's a great move that he went there. But I think that is a, a downside of the trip, is that it allows the anti-Ukraine crowd in, in the U.S. to sort of more fully frame this as uh biden's folly yeah. or or his his A partisan uh, effort yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah you know one thing that struck me of course uh last week uh thursday uh we had the doctor's report and we had a very brief news cycle about brian uh biden's uh infirmities or uh his health or um you know the, the fact that the doctor's report did not mention um whether a cognitive exam had been performed uh, and then 24 hours later, he's embarked embarking on this secret mission, leaving the White House at 3.30 in the morning, taking this special train from Poland uh, into Ukraine. I think putting to rest, um, certainly among Democrats uh, uh, for the time being, any concern that Biden is not fit uh, to, to run for re-election. Um, my other takeaway was uh, his speech. And to just take a step back for a second. You know, think about a year ago, um, what we were expecting. In fact, I think I was on the podcast a year ago when the war broke out. Uh, we were expecting Ukraine to lose. Uh, we were expecting the government to collapse. Uh, we were expecting that um, this would embolden Xi Jinping. And we were expecting kind of a drawn out insurgency among Ukrainian partisans to erode Putin's dominion over their country. Um well, then that that didn't happen. And it was pretty clear uh, that, in fact, the Ukrainians uh, had uh, stopped the um, effort at regime change within a few weeks. Then uh, we kind of moved to the the longer discussion over the course of the year about, well, you know, this coalition that Biden has assembled, this NATO, it's not going to hold. It's going to break apart. Um, there won't be unity. Putin uh, will have the advantage. He'll create splits in the coalition and especially just wait for the winter to come. Uh, there will be Europeans freezing. The Germans will break away uh, because they can't uh, heat uh, provide heat for their population. And in fact, uh, one year later, as Biden makes this visit to Kiev, um, the coalition has held. And in fact, that nightmarish winter we were hearing about for months 
seems to have gone pretty pretty well for Europe. Well, it was providential, right? It, as it turned out, uh, it was a mild, it was an exceptionally mild winter, and that that proposition wasn't tested uh, by the idea that you know uh, oil or whatever prices in Germany would have you know could have tripled had it been a more conventional winter. So. So in that sense, as is often the case with successes in geopolitics, luck Mm -hmm. played a part here. Um, You know, it was an exceptionally um, early thaw in 2022, which is one of the reasons that the Russian tanks got mired on the way to Kiev and could not move on the road, which was the first providential uh stroke for 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 the ukrainians in their in their uh resistance and their counter assault so like i say as is often the case here you you have you have god or you know something playing some kind of a you know that that which no man can control ends up having mm-hmm. having a fortuitous uh place here i, I you know it, it was striking when yeah the there was great solemnity here on this podcast with you and all this when it broke out this idea that we were going to have to figure out how we were going to react to the russian takeover of ukraine would we accept it i think i even mentioned the idea that this was going to be a a recap of what happened with the baltic states um where we never accepted the Soviet dominion over the Baltic states. We re- we recognized the Baltic states as independent nations. Uh, f- and, you know, they had their own currency. They had ambassador. It was kind of very silly. It was almost like a comic thing where you would meet someone who would tell you that he was the Washington consul of Estonia, or he was, you know, he was the New York, con- he ran the New York consulate of Latvia or something in the 70s and 80s. And it was sort of cute. It was almost like, you know, the mouse that roared or something like that. And then, of course, it turned out that the Soviet Union ended and our refusal to accept the dominion of the Soviet Union over Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia meant that they were independent and members of NATO almost immediately. And that's the kind of example we were talking about. And then and then things took this turn. And the minute that it happened, though, something shifted that we shouldn't make light of. Because I went back and I was looking at things. And you remember sort of three days into, um, into the Soviet invasion, Russian invasion, excuse me, Germany announced that it was doubling its defense budget. New, the new the new premier of Germany. Uh, it was as though cold water was splashed in the face of Western Europe and the notion that there really could be a thing where you could see how Russia winning in Ukraine would embolden it to take on NATO directly and do it exactly as war games have foretold you know that they would make an incursion into the baltics that they would test the waters that they would seize this island off finland or Sweden. i mean there's weird things that they would do to test nato's resolve and then maybe actually do it try to deliver the knockout blow that would break the nato alliance by by doing something that would cause one of the NATO members to invoke Article 5, which requires a collective defense of a NATO member's being attacked, and that basically nobody would come to their defense. And 
that prospect suddenly, like Dr. Johnson's hanging, sobered up the Europeans after two or three decades of an unbelievable fecklessness militarily. And in that weird sense, Europe's resolve, even if it's not that great compared to us, I don't know, who knows, bolstered us. Like we went and said, we're going to do it. They have been more aggressive in in the notion that that Ukraine cannot be allowed to lose this than we've been. That's surprising, and it suggested it suggested a kind of health in the NATO alliance that nobody thought it had. Obviously, with Trump's attacks on it, and the kind of the the way in which the American people were starting to say things like, "Yeah, they're all a bunch of freeloaders," and we, you know, forget it. We should pull out of NATO, that kind of thing. And that's that's sort of over with. But and not just in Europe too. I mean, of course, Japan also. Uh, yeah. moved uh, very rapidly to rearm. And so the, this wake-up call was was global, uh, not right. just limited to, to Europe. Right. I think, um, I mean, even though he's already been praised to the hilt, justifiably, large part of that, especially when it comes to Europe, um, has to do with the personal talents and abilities uh, of of Zelensky. Um, he, he really um, sort of, he took the right course from the from the get go, um, and sort of was able to show forbearance, while also I think kind of implicitly shaming uh, any 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 sentiments in Europe that that didn't want didn't think that this was critical and the, and worth the fight. Um, I think he sort of he brought the cause um, very effectively to to them. I mean, again, more more you know fortuitousness that this corruption scandal in Ukraine, the corruption of, of the of the 2010s, leads to this wildly unexpected election of this uh, TV comedian who play, who made a television show which uh, you can watch on Netflix, Servant of the People, uh, about an ordinary guy like him becoming the becoming the premier of Ukraine. Uh, and then he becomes premier of Ukraine, and there was every reason to think that this was come some, some kind of preposterous, you know, Jesse Ventura moment. And then it turned out that he, you know, providentially was made for this moment, um, and that he not only has a fine grasp, it, it's ridiculous even to call it PR. I mean, first of all, he had to have a measure of personal and physical courage, right? Because there was a moment where he, what, what was the thing he said? I don't need a, I need a, I don't need a ride. I need, I need ammunition, right? I need his, ammunition. His Biden, the Biden administration was encouraging him to flee to Lviv, the right. uh, cap, the old capital, the the city in the um, in the west, and he said, "No, I need, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition." Right. So that's like a, a hinge moment in history, in some sense, because of course he could have gone the other way. Uh, I mean, m most leaders under that, those circumstances. The Afghan have. president Ghani had done exactly that. Right. He fled to Qatar right. as the Taliban right. was beating down his door. Yeah. So that was the so, difference. So, and then of course, like continuing to show personal courage and obviously being bolstered by the Ukrainian people's demand of him that he not only stay the course but kind of up the ante as they're succeeding. You know, if the, if the if the first goal of the war was to 
stop the Russians from taking as much territory as they could before before somehow some kind of deal could be struck to get them out. Uh, we now have Ukrainians maybe foolishly like imagining that the war will end with them taking back Crimea and the Donbass, which I don't think anybody really thinks is in the cards. No one, no one knows, but you know, and you don't want them to be in a position where they imagine uh, an end to the war that is unachievable and that therefore they will think that any settlement is a sellout or is a is a is a defeat because even by this point unless they get overrun obviously they have not been defeated they become a sort of a major nation in, in the eyes of the world and and Russia is looking very damaged you know right. and they did that i mean they did that with with our help but they did it like that's the that's the comedy of it and we should start getting to the conservative reaction stuff because um we didn't do we trained them we have a great piece by todd lindbergh in the magazine a few months ago about you know what we can now put together about why the ukrainians were kind of ready uh to take on russia and the kind of training that we did behind the scenes after the 2014 invasion of crimea to help them um but uh these stands in these hollowed out cities that's them that's not us you know right. high marsh my mars you know it's right. this is this is like on the ground old-fashioned pre-modern warfare where they are not allowing the russians to move forward at the risk of their lives their buildings their family everything yeah the, the uh, historian stephen kotkin who's now at the hoover institution and who i will be citing uh very often in the <laughs> in the podcast yeah. uh has an equation where he says you know ukrainian heroism plus russian atrocities equals western solidarity and i think right. that puts that very very well i want to make one um observation about uh the other country uh president biden is visiting which is poland he's in poland today our nato ally and of course uh, when you were mentioning john about how uh the the invasion of ukraine was a wake-up call to europe the the frontline countries the frontline nato countries poland in particular have been the most hawkish and the most um uh, convinced that the west the free world needs to make a stand against russia here now or else uh uh bear the awful consequences uh, and i i think it's uh, amusing because um prior to the war the national conservatives uh and uh, traditionalists in America had two European countries uh, that they uh, idolized and lionized. One was Viktor Orban's Hungary, and the other is Poland with the Law and Justice Party, a very traditionalist Catholic party uh, who governs Poland. Um, and, you know, it's amazing, but uh, I, I read their journals and I, I read their websites. Uh, they, they never talk about Poland for the past year, it's as though Poland has vanished off the map. It's still, uh, they still praise Orban, who of course is the major um, dove in Europe and who is really trying to force some type of peace settlement that would um, basically legitimize Russia's claims uh, in Eastern Ukraine and in Crimea. Crimea. Uh, so they talk them up, but Poland which is so hawkish and where Biden is today and which is always pushing. In fact, just I, I just recently saw that, you know, there are polls protesting Biden's visit for not for not doing enough 
give them the F-16s is what the Polish people are saying. Um, that they that has uh, co- conveniently, I don't know what happened, uh, disappeared from the NatCon imagination. Well, you know, if the if the if the if the polls uh, had started uh, think tanks supported by the government that that would employ at you know large salaries <laughs> or more magazines, various yeah yeah, yeah we various, need to, various Western natcon we need to start the the Polish conservative. That's, yes, that's, the, that's, exactly. Yeah. yeah, the Polish yeah. conservative or the yeah. you know the Polish Congress for Cultural Freedom. <laughs> you know, I'm for it. I'm for it. Yeah. I always believe America should support Polish independence and strength. So, uh, yeah. but I just it's a it's a but fun that is point. a that is a that is a very good point, Abe. You know, you mentioned that um, Biden's visit may have exacerbated the partisan quality of the or the worryingly partisan quality of, of where you stand on on support for Ukraine, that it's now, that this ties it so closely to Biden personally that Republicans uh, are going to have a hard time being open supporters of these efforts on the grounds that since everything Biden does needs to be condemned, uh, the f- this uh this this the the negative the negative polarization effect uh will will draw people away i mean I, I the only thing i can compare it to oddly enough is the uh is the uh complaint against uh bibi netanyahu speaking at in the, at the congress in 2015 where supporters supposed supporters of israel said it was a terrible idea for netanyahu to speak before congress because he was because he had this bad relationship with obama and this was just going to drive democrats further away from israel and um the problem is that you know I don't think in a in a dynamic world situation you can make calculations like that. Biden's looking at the situation, the circumstances. He apparently wanted to go to Ukraine for months. Uh, the fortuitous nature of him going to Poland meant that he could go to Ukraine. The timing ended up being good because of the anniversary coming. All that stuff, they figured out the logistics of it can't then just you know say well i don't know you know i need kevin mccarthy's support so i'm not going to go because this will because there is a continuum here in terms of support we've been on this podcast we've had fred kagan matt's colleague at, at ai on this podcast saying that the Biden administration is not doing enough sort of like the the polls that uh that in fact, in the formulation of my father in his book, Why We Were in Vietnam, that we are sort of doing this on the strategic military and geopolitical cheap. That though people keep citing these numbers of how much money we're spending, in fact, you know, the political advantage of Putin losing in Ukraine is so huge that if we were spending 10 times the amount that we're spending, the return on investment would be colossal. Um, and I think that's a disingenuous argument anyway. I mean, you know, $100, $100 billion is a, used to be a lot of money, and it's now not that much money, unfortunately. And it should be more money, but it isn't. And so, I, uh, yeah. I mean, look, look, the thing is, it's more important that we send the message 
to to Russia and Putin about where the U.S. stands on this war and 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 how fully we back Ukraine here. That is more important than worrying about uh, uh, the 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 anti-Ukraine element at home. But it is an element, of, and 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 the other the, the other calculation here in in thinking about that, you know, if, if Biden indeed has thought about that in terms of um, how how this will play to the to the net with the, among the NATCONs and whomever else is against is against uh, our support for Ukraine, the 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 turn against this effort is coming anyway, or it's or it's or the or the that the rise in that sentiment is coming anyway. Um, so it's not something that you can, you're going to be able to, to stave off. So better to do the, 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 the necessary geopolitical strategic thing than to worry about that. Okay. Let me take a break and then we're going to get to that. Um, cause that, that, that is, that is part two of this conversation as you kind of teased it. Uh, but before that, let me talk to you about our advertiser today, Bambi, cause when running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. You get complaints because maybe somebody isn't that great with their personal hygiene in the office. What are you going to do about it? You can talk to Bambi. Bambi provides you your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. Available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly, team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with ever-changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers on staff can easily cost eighty grand a year. Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E.com, Bambi.com, type in Commentary Magazine. I, yeah, I just wanted to pick up yeah. on... um what uh, Abe was saying, because um, when you look at American history, uh, partisan dynamics do play a role. I mean, um, this is one of the themes of uh, Robert Kagan's new book, The Ghost at the Feast, a history of American foreign policy from the Spanish-American War until Pearl Harbor, which is that, you know, the GOP began the 20th century under the leadership of President uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge as kind of the internationalist party. But the reaction to uh, Woodrow Wilson leading America into uh, the First World War and then Wilson's kind of, um, you know, liberal internationalist vision of the post-war order featuring the League of Nations and collective security pushed a figure like Lodge uh, into an alliance with uh, iso- Republican isolationists like William Bora. And so it was it was partisan politics that kind of generated the republican foreign policy of the 1920s and 1930s which was not internationalist at all and in which in fact kind of resisted um uh fdr's efforts in the 1930s to um shore up our defenses and aid the allies in their fight against hitler i worry something uh, i worry that something very similar is happening today i mean you know one of the points i make in the right is in fact the republican party is coming to resemble its pre-war self in many ways and the turn here on ukraine i think which is visible in the polls um is another piece of evidence for that argument 
Look, that is a very important parallel, and 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 we should we should delve into it a little bit because if you take the period of the United States from the 1890s through the 1930s, we saw reversals in definitions of what these parties stood for that are really striking and are very helpful to understanding our situation today. Home Party was not only internationalist, even imperialist, um, but it was the free trading party. And the Democrats were uh, dominated by new, newly sort of newly powerful populist interests. The idea that we weren't uh, William Jennings Bryan, the three-time Democratic nominee for president who said, you know, we would not hang ourselves on a, on a cross of gold. Uh, Republicans wanted to free trade around the world. It was one of the reasons for the imperialism that Teddy Roosevelt embraced that, that we were like opening shipping. We opened the Panama canal. We did all this stuff to make, to bring America into sort of the modern world so that our goods could freely ship around the world and make us the economic superpower that we, you know, were fast becoming. And then, as you say, Matt, after after World War One was over, um, uh, there was a kind of weird switch that uh, Wilson went too far, wanted to sort of enshrine this international world order that was uh, under the League of Nations. And then over the course of the 20s, this outward-reaching Republican Party retracts, becomes a party, it becomes an anti-immigration party, and then becomes a protectionist party under under Hoover. Like the general conservative understanding of the Great Depression is that there was this terrible economic shock, and then Hoover and the Republicans tightened protectionism, and it was smooth Hawley that killed that that destroyed the world economy. Uh, in, you know, in this wrong reaction. So over the course of 30 years, you go from being the free trading, out forward-facing, outward-looking party into this, you know, uh, build the walls, don't, you know, ignore the, you know, stay out of the world, you know, encroaching alliances and all of that. So it can happen this fast. It happened this fast before. And yeah, this is the great question now about 2024 that goes beyond... Trump versus DeSantis, are Republicans crazy? Is Marjorie Taylor Greene's divorce something we want to talk about into? What is the vision of the Republican Party and the America's place in the world going to be? And I think there, all three of us are very worried. Yeah. And uh, the worry increased uh, yesterday, uh, John, when I uh, sent you this uh, interview uh, that uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis gave to Fox News. Uh, DeSantis, of course, uh, seems pretty serious now uh, about launching a president presidential campaign. He, well, he his, basically launched yeah. his presidential. <laughs> it's campaign a soft yesterday. launch. Yeah, it's a soft launch. Yeah. with his visit to New York, uh, he's going to Philly, and Chicago. Yeah, and Chicago. His Law and Order tour. He calls it. The book comes out um, next week, uh, and uh, of course, it uh, he had the interview with Selena Zito uh, um, in the New York Post, uh, which got Donald Trump so angry. Uh, the other day. But, um, you know, he gave this interview where he talked on uh, Fox and Friends and was asked about Biden's visit. And I'm just going to read a few quotes because I, I have a I'm, a I'm not quite sure what I think uh, about it. And so I want to hear from you. So he says, 
the fear of Russia going into NATO countries and all of that and steamrolling, you know, that has not even come close to happening. I think Russia has shown itself to be a third rate military power. Um, and then about Biden, he goes, you know, he's very concerned about those borders halfway around the world. He's not done anything to secure our border at home. Um, and, uh, you know, the administration has no clear strategic objective identified, he said, and I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into a proxy war with China, getting involved over things like the borderlands or over Crimea. Uh, while Russia is hostile, he said, this is the Politico write-up, China poses a bigger threat. Uh, and he also invoked the blank check uh, language. Um, and so that leads to my question, which is, uh, so there like, seem to be two well, there's several positions. There one, there is the hawk position, my position, which is we need to support Ukraine. We need to give more support to Ukraine. Russia must not win this war. What the end state is is something we can talk about. Uh, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about it because I think the war is going to go on for a while. Then there's the uh, Josh Hawley, Senator Hawley, the senator from Missouri, who gave a speech at the Heritage Foundation last week, where he basically laid out the argument for what you might call the Asia first Republican foreign policy, which is, uh, you know, um, uh, Europe doesn't matter. Um, Europe needs to do more. We need to leave Ukraine to Europeans. Sure, we like Ukraine, but you know what? Uh, the Europeans should be in charge of its defense. What we really need to worry about is China. China's the big threat. China's on the other side of the planet. We need to focus everything on China and the defense of Taiwan in particular. So that's kind of the, that's what I call the Asia first argument. Right. And then there, in the middle, there's Kevin McCarthy, Right. Because Kevin McCarthy, prior to the election, said, you know, there will be no blank checks for Ukraine. And leading to the question, well, what is a blank check? Right. I mean, does it mean, OK, we're going to make sure that the money goes to weapons? Uh, it's a blank check. We're giving them the money, uh, you know, and we're saying we don't want to give them a blank check. But all of the committees of jurisdiction in the House of Representatives are led by hawks. Right. So is that kind of just a strategic move McCarthy is making to shore up support. Is DeSantis more like Hawley or is he more like McCarthy? That's what I'm wondering. Well, we don't know, right? And I think what DeSantis said yesterday is a mark of why he's formidable and why I'm so why I'm worried. That is to say, he said Biden is giving Ukraine a blank check. Now that's McCarthy said, we're not going to assent to a blank check for Ukraine. We will we will perform oversight and make sure that the money that is being spent isn't stolen, isn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then also that it's being it's gone to good purposes. DeSantis then takes it a step further and says Biden's giving a blank check to Ukraine. Now that's preposterous. But it's maybe politically smart, uh, which is what's unnerving about it. Because, as I said, if Frank Hagan were on this podcast, he would be saying, Halavai, that it's a blank check. Like, I wish it were a blank check. Like, they need a blank check. Because we need to do to Russia essentially what we did in the 80s with, with the Strategic Defense Initiative. Like, we need to say, we are going to pour money into this until you are crushed beneath our boot so maybe you should be suing for peace we've we're, we're we've left someone out of this discussion yeah. nikki haley um 
who has gone is full hawk, hawk on yeah, this issue. Full hawk, yeah. And 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 speaks about it in precisely the language that the NatCon crowd hates. Right. She's saying this isn't about Russia, this is about freedom. Okay, so let's so let's go into what DeSantis is up to and and Hawley as well. So Hawley's speech uh, which only got news because it was he. Uh, somebody started screaming at him about climate change uh, from you know in the Heritage Auditorium, and otherwise that was, was not. <laughs> that was yeah, me. it was. was I just um, I wanted to disrupt the speech. Yeah. Okay. So here's what Hawley said. Hawley said, "For 30 years, America has American foreign policy has been dominated by a uniparty, by which he means the establishment, both Republican and Democratic. And here's what they want to do." They want to coddle China. They want to mire Americans in the Middle East in war forever. And they are now, you know, wanting to do the same in in, in Russia. Um, and this is made up of internet leftist internationalists and neocons. And this is the Uniparty. And uh, we need to do and and so. What we need to do now, according to Hawley, is cut off Ukraine. I mean, it doesn't just say we need to turn our attention primarily to China. We need to cut all aid to Ukraine so that we can focus all of our attention on helping China, uh, on, on, on dealing with China's threat to Taiwan. At the beginning of his speech, however, he says, should China move on Taiwan... It will, let's be serious. I'm going to talk Turkey to you. China takes Taiwan. That's it. If China goes to Taiwan, China takes Taiwan. So why would we devote all of our resources to helping Taiwan when he has already seen the end of the war, Chinese war in Taiwan as a victory for China? He says that it makes no sense the logic of the neocon position, which is we are fighting in Ukraine and DeSantis got garbled here. His sentence about China border wars, Crimea, he got it's not clear what his antecedents were. I think he meant Russia, but he said China, but he was echoing this a little bit. And the the point here is, or he was echoing Hawley's reaction to this is it makes no sense to say that we're fighting in ukraine in order to deter china they're not connected they're not related what does Xi care about what's happening in ukraine and we say this and hawley says this too because of course he wants to take shots at biden biden summoned ukraine upon the world by his horrible pullout from afghanistan that is correct. There would have been no invasion of Ukraine had Putin not taken the measure of Biden and thought that he was a paper tiger and wouldn't do anything since he was so eager to get out of Afghanistan. And there was this incredible humiliation of America in August of 2021. And then he moves in six months later. Um, so we say you got to win here because then we go to G, you know, we're emboldened by our, by a victory. We're emboldened. We, we, we show that we're willing to commit our national treasure and our resources to this effort. And then we will, we'll say to China, don't, 
don't be so tempted. You think we're done? We just won over here. You stay in your lane. You leave that island alone. You know, I don't care what you're, you know, Putin had, you know, six claimed 600 years of ambition in relation to Russia and Ukraine. I don't, we don't care what your claim to Taiwan is. You're not taking it unless you want to face us down. But what threat do we have with them? Why? Because Hawley says we should be doing this. We should be like sending lots of weapons. I don't know. We're supposed to have them on ships in the South China Sea. I mean, he says we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do the other thing. Um, This makes no sense. We have a strategy for Taiwan. And I believe the Biden administration believes it too. The strategy for Taiwan is to win in Ukraine. And the idea that that's illogical shows that Hawley and these guys are factitious because they do not understand or they no longer believe in deterrence as a strategy. Well, um, you you grasp the, the Biden theory that uh, the defense of Asia actually runs through the Western alliance. And you know what? So does Xi Jinping. That's the other big news uh, out of the weekend here, which is the Biden administration's growing alarm that China may move in come in the coming weeks to uh, ramp up direct armament of Russia, linking the t- linking the two theaters in a way that has not been seen uh, over the duration of the conflict to date. And so, from Xi Jinping's perspective, Russian victory is important, uh, just as from our perspective. Russian defeat is significant in order to deter China. They know that I always think it's fun. Let's just listen to the dictators. (laughs) They know (laughs) they, they are very clear about what they see as their interests and what they see as their threats. And also, mm -hmm. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but they're also very clear on what their conception of the, of, of our MO is, which is, and this, this, this goes from uh, Al Qaeda to, to Russia, to China, the idea is that the Americans will fight until they get tired, and then and then they lose. Um, right, we're decadent. How yeah, on earth would confirming that yet again yeah. um, uh, for them? How would that help deter China? And that's always, by the way, the argument too of of kind of the isolationists, which is you know we're not up to it. We're not up to it. And um, and but the funny thing is, we we never look up to it until we have to do it right. <laughs> and, and and it's amazing we have these powers of regeneration um but i do want to um uh just uh, have a uh, a point about the the 2024 dimension of this which is interesting because right now you know all it's like a rush to fill in that maga lane right because the the uh criticism of the biden administration's ukraine policy that also extends more broadly to our posture in europe and our posture vis-a-vis ukraine uh is not just senator hawley it's also senator vance from ohio it's president trump right uh, president trump his uh, former president trump has said that uh he wants to have uh some type of peace initiative he's kind of unclear on the details um and that really to date, it's only Nikki Haley who's going to draw a contrast here. So I think with these comments, DeSantis very cleverly uh, is, is, is wants to stake out his territory in the MAGA world, which has been kind of his, um, MO for, you know, for the, for the past several years. Um, it's not, I mean, it's definitely where it seems many Republican voters are heading. And yet, you know, if you're on a debate stage and six people are saying the the same thing 
Well, the seventh person who's saying something different might actually get a second look. I think that Hawley is keeping his powder drier than maybe you are. That uh, this was a very confusing. You mean DeSantis? You mean DeSantis? DeSantis. I'm sorry. I think what he said was confused. I don't think it was on purpose confused. He really isn't used to talking about foreign policy. And uh, the fact that he uh, volunteered and served in the military gives him, you know, he does not uh, seem to emanate from the anti-war wing, you know, the post-serving anti-war wing of the part, which is a real thing. Um, And so I think what he wants to say is Biden stinks. So Biden stinks in every possible way. So I can't say anything good about what he's doing here. He's giving them a blank check. But I think saying he's concerned about the borders in Kiev, you know, in, in the border between Russia and Crimea and the border between Russia and Ukraine, and he's not concerned about our borders, is very smart. I I mean, I, I'm more dovish on immigration but but i mean that is because again you can walk and chew gum at the same time there's no reason that we can't be fighting a war in ukraine and having better border security at home here in the united states we clearly don't have better border security from the democratic party and biden because they don't want to do it and they are ideologically opposed to it and all of that and that is going to be a big weak point for Biden in if there is a commonsensical run for president by a Republican. Because that is just axiomatic. It's like, why aren't you protecting our borders? Democrats don't have an answer for it. That's why Biden said that nonsense in the State of the Union about how he's the only one who's protecting the borders and Republicans need to pass his whatever legislation that he's, whatever, that nonsense. He's try, They're trying to figure out what on earth they're going to say because this is this is an issue that could kill them. But, I mean, he's not really committed yet, DeSantis, uh, to this uh, isolationist position. But but the fact that he's playing footsie with it. Abe, I, go ahead. I, I think there's I just want to bring Nikki Haley back in and, and, and the fact that she's a contrast here. Um, if she stays um, with this full throated defense of uh, um, of Ukraine and it's hawkish hawkish position on freedom and so on um it means that her fortunes sort of hang on the outcome of this war um uh to a really great degree i mean what happens if there's there's something like a like a like a full russian defeat within the next year and uh she's the only one that's been up there saying we have to do this and we can do this I don't know. Well, and the the parallel, of course, is with the surge in Iraq, right? And in the 2008 Republican presidential cycle, uh, John McCain, you know, begins as a front runner in many ways uh, in 2007. But people seem to be wanting to give looks to other candidates. You know, of course, uh, Mitt Romney uh, had that was his first run. He was the true conservative uh, in that cycle. And then there was. Fred Thompson was a late entry. There's, of course, Rudy Giuliani. And if you recall, um, in December of 2007, uh, when McCain's fortunes in the Republican primary were at a low, he basically makes as his single issue the surge in Iraq. And that is that is about the time 
uh, when the surge began to show its first results in terms of decline of American casualties, decline in overall violence, decline in terrorism. And the the facts on the ground, just as you say, Abe, the facts on the ground boosted McCain at a critical moment. He, of course, wins the nomination. So that's I I I completely agree. There's so much unknown, and I feel as though people are so ready to declare the nominating race over, you know, right now. And look, I I am on the record. I believe that Donald Trump should not be discounted at all. Uh, I believe he is the front runner for the nomination. But that's, but that doesn't mean that things can't change and cha- can change dramatically before the first uh, caucus happens next year. Uh, look, it would be a fool's errand for anybody to think that we know how any of this is going to play out. Um, the question is, what is the nature of the temptation that Ron DeSantis is experiencing here? Because he's very canny. Uh, I do not get the sense if I had to bet, I don't know this for a fact, but if I had to bet, I would bet that if you were alone in a room with him, he would be fully supportive of the war in Ukraine. The fact that he doesn't know, and nobody really knows how the formerly interventionist party in the United States and the voters of that party will react are reacting to a situation in which we are simply sending money and goods to a country without involving a single u.s troop and that this has now become a this isn't our fight we shouldn't be involved in it we're not here it's one thing to have a big split over a circumstance where you have hundreds of thousands of people at arms it's another thing to complain when what, what what's happening is we're sending materiel and this is seen as some kind of a disruption of the world order. Well, no, it sounds like the Democrats during the Reagan doctrine in the 80s. Yeah. Right. The fights over El Salvador and the Contras in Nicaragua and by and, and arming the Afghans to fight right. the Russians. That's exactly what the Democrats said. This isn't you're you're, you're escalating. You're escalating. You're getting us right. involved. Now it's the Republicans yeah. saying it. Right. And of course, where that parallel is even more unnerving is that one of the reasons that the Democrats said that is not like all things being equal. We don't want the we don't want the Sandinistas running Nicaragua. We don't want the um, FMLN running, you know, like winning in El Salvador. Plenty of Democrats did actually want that. <laughs> right. Uh, they weren't saying it quite openly or that they wanted, you know. This wasn't like this is this is unwise. It wasn't like Kissingerian rail politique. What we're right. doing is unwise. It's that we're militarizing. We're militaristic. We need to de-escalate because we're bad, and they're you know they're right. just chasing us or whatever it is. And that's where it get because you mentioned how suddenly they don't talk about Poland. They still talk about the Natcons that that DeSantis is playing footsie with here. Do not want Ukraine to win. It's not like all things being equal, they want Ukraine. They say, oh, well, you know, Russia shouldn't have done this. They don't want Ukraine to win. And in the end, that's where the rubber is going to meet the road here. Is the Republican Party, did Trump soften the ground sufficiently that the Republican Republican Party is now 
turned isolationist. And um, we don't know the answer to that. The weird part is that, perversely, the better that the Ukrainians do with Biden's support, the more the temptation is going to be to go the other direction in the Republican Party, because then what are you going to do? Like, Biden's going to win a war? Like, it's going to be part of a winning a war, go into 2024 in a kind of triumphalist position? You'll never win the election. There's going to be an era of good feeling. America's going to feel good about what it did. So they have a simple partisan interest maybe in not, you know, joining the parade. Although, Abe, you think maybe that's wrong, right? That that the candidate who can say, yeah, I was for this all along and you wanted to you wanted to cut Ukraine off. Josh Hall, not that Josh Hawley would be running for you said you wanted to cut Ukraine off. Well, I wanted them to win all along. And here we are, you know, having scored this great victory. I don't know. I just think it's a possibility, um, especially if she is literally the only one who 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 has been saying it, and right. all the others will look somewhat foolish um, for ha- for having been on the wrong side. I have noticed that there's this um, inverse relationship between Ukrainian success on the battlefield and calls at home for peace talks with Russia. So the better, whenever Ukraine makes an advance, that's when you have a spike in calls for uh, peace negotiations uh, with Russia. If Russia it seems to be making progress, no one's talking about peace negotiations. It yeah. only happens when Ukraine makes advances. The problem, of course, is that neither side has been making advances uh, for several months. And right. this means that um, the, the war is going to drag on uh, for yeah. several more podcasts, at least. Yeah, if I said to you, that the vanguard, the intellectual vanguard of the Republican Party, suppose, or the the self, the people who believe they are the intellectual vanguard of the Republican Party, are now walking around talking about how they want international peace negotiations. If I told you that at any point in my lifetime, would would this would this compute? Republicans don't believe in international peace negotiations. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, not this. They haven't believed it since uh, Pearl Harbor, yeah. <laughs> basically. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's just a, you know, again, this this uh, inversion that we talked about, the political party ideological inversion of the beginning of the at the beginning of the twentieth century, the first three decades of the twentieth century. That is the test of the Republican Party this year, and 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 its and its future, and what it, what it stands for. Uh, okay, so we will bring this first. I, let's call this phase three of the commentary magazine podcast. Mm-hmm. So, fo- following Marvel, the Marvel movies are now yeah. in phase five. So, phase one was our first set of podcast, which was twice a week. That was like 2016 to 2020. Then in 2020, we went five days a week. That was phase two. And phase three is the continuity era right continental and you know in most conqueror in here. most tv shows the third season is when things get really good that's all i'm going to say <laughs> okay. my list it takes the first two seasons as you know to kind of work out the kinks in the script writing and the actors need to find their characters so this is the third season so this is i think where we're things are going to get good here we are christine will not be with us tomorrow so we'll again be this uh, triumvirate and uh, she will be back on thursday we'll be back tomorrow for abe and Matt and the absent Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.